Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. The opening years of the 21st century seem to herald a new era. On the back of China's remarkable economic revitalization, India's reforms, as well as the ongoing growth in South Korea, Taiwan, and the ASEAN economies, many argued that the new century belonged to Asia. The world's center of gravity appeared to be shifting from its North Atlantic home of the past two centuries back to Asia. This was the reason Barack Obama made the pivot to the region the centerpiece of his foreign and defense policy and was the motivating force of the then Labor government's exhortatory Australia in the Asian Century white paper, released in late 2012. But five years on, has the gloss come off the Asian Century? China's economy seems to be beset with problems. Tensions in the East and South China Sea have ramped up the risks of conflict. India remains a country whose greatest asset appears to be potential. While underlying structural problems from rapidly aging populations to stunted political institutions and rampant inequality underline the region's fragility. Was the declaration of an Asian century premature? What will Asia's development mean for Australia? And what can and should the country do to maximise its opportunities and minimise the risks posed by the transformation of its region? Joining me to look under the hood of the idea of the Asian century is Andrew Lee. Andrew is the federal member for Fenner and the shadow assistant treasurer and prior to his election to Parliament, Andrew was a Professor of Economics at the Australian National University. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Thanks, Nick. Great to be with you. Thank you. Um, so, in under the span of a lifetime, Asia has moved from being a war-prone, economically underdeveloped part of the world to a dynamic region that's really capturing the public policy imagination. Why did or do people believe that the century is going to be Asian? Well, one of the most extraordinary things that a country can do, I think, Nick, is to move its people from developing country standards to developed country standards. We don't have a magical bright line there, but uh, for me, I think of it as uh, going from a country where kids are going to bed hungry and where is, there is stunting and where parents often experience that most terrible of losses to to lose a child uh, when they're in infancy, to a standard of living in which you can eat what you want, there's a wide array of clothes available, people buy motor cars when they need to, uh, the level of abundance that most of the OECD enjoys. And within Asia, we've seen a couple of countries, Singapore and Japan, make that extraordinary leap from developing to developed country status. Now, of course, you have the possibility that at some stage in our lifetimes, China might make the same transition. If it did, it would mean a bigger improvement in world well-being than pretty much anything else we've ever seen. We've already seen uh, more than a tenfold increase in Chinese living standards just over the course of my lifetime, uh, but more might be yet to come. So it's most exciting for people in those countries, but of course that growth spills over in uh, in both the demand for products from other countries, uh, but also the exports that come from Asia. I think Jeffrey Sachs is famous for saying the economic reforms in China are the greatest story in human development history ever, full yes. stop, the end. What were the sort of elements that made that possible, whether it's the sort of early movers, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, or whether the big story of China, what are the sort of big points that I mean, we scholarly economists hat on that allowed that to happen? 
Well, economists think about uh, growth as coming from labour, capital and technology. Uh, we've seen over that period significant improvements in the quality of human capital, the quality of schooling in Asian countries, going from a level when most of the population hadn't finished primary school to a situation in which as in Australia, nearly a half of young people are, are starting a university degree. You've also seen great improvements in uh, institutions. When you have secure property rights, people are willing to start a business and uh, they can borrow against their land. Uh, when you have a government that isn't a predatory state, uh, isn't pursuing madcap policies like uh, Mao Zedong's attempt to try and get the Chinese population to kill flies and the other crazy policies that have been pursued in, uh, in autocracies over the course of uh, human history. Once you get secure property rights and a, and a half-decent government, it's amazing what you can do. And I guess there's also that sense of Asian economies being very much plugged into a, a global economy where exports and the like become a, a real engine for growth. Is, is there a sense that without that broader international context that takeoff couldn't have occurred? Look, absolutely. We used to talk, uh, when I was at university in the early 1990s, we'd talk about the export-led growth of the uh, the four Asian tigers. It's funny now, you don't hear the talk <laughs> of the tigers any longer, and uh, I hope I get them right when I list them. Korea, Singapore, Japan, and Hong Kong, I think, were the tigers. Taiwan, that, there's that sort of Taiwan and Hong Kong kind of ambiguity that people go for. Exactly. A number exactly. of Asian tigers. <laughs> yes, yeah, but mainland China wasn't one of them at the time in the early 1990s. We were still at that stage at which Chinese growth was uh, was taking off. Now we're looking at a country which is, depending on how you adjust for purchasing power parity, either the largest or the second largest country in the world, the number one trading partner for two-thirds of the world's countries, and a huge source not just of demand, but also ideas, new innovations increasingly coming out of the Chinese economy. Yeah, I think the figure that was widely plagiarised in Australian the Asian Century White Paper was that figure of over the next 20 years, there'll be two billion middle-class consumers, which mm. is one of those rather eye-popping statistics. That's right. And, and we haven't really talked about India, which has been slower to move into the global economy, but the Indian reforms, particularly the early 1990s, are absolutely critical. Uh, and steadily, India is coming along that path of, uh, of improving living standards. Education levels still way below what you see in, in much of the rest of Asia, and, and that's a huge impediment to Indian growth, uh, as its leaders are well aware. Yeah, it's one of those figures that, with my university hat on, when you go to India or talk to senior Indian officials, they give you these figures like, we need to build something like two universities a week, every week for the next 10 years to fulfill the demand that we believe we need to achieve. Yeah, but Nick, <laughs> I mean, the, the story of Indian education is they've been far too focused on tertiary education Indeed. and enough in yeah. primary education. Uh, you know, look at states like Rajasthan, which have still got, last time I checked, almost a half of the population that's functionally illiterate. I'm sure they can do better on universities, but getting everyone to read and write has got to be the first priority. No, indeed. And the other thing that's striking about India is that um, massive regional variation from almost complete literacy in the south to the poor parts in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh and elsewhere where functional literacy is, is considerable. Which yeah. I guess gets to that bigger question of we often will talk, and particularly the public debate in Australia a few years ago was very much about the sense of promise and possibility that a prosperous Asia and a peaceful Asia was going to bring. And yet now we look at Asia and we will think, and not just because of Mr. Trump, but in fact, almost in spite of Mr. Trump, there's a lot of problems with Asian economies and Asian societies. 
when you look at the region and, and uh, you know, if your glass half empty, cracked <laughs> or the like, what do you think are the biggest weaknesses that the region's got? You put your finger on education in India as, as one, but what else perhaps um, starting with the economic problems, most obviously say in China? Mm. So I'm halfway through reading David Chambeau's book, uh, China's Future, which talks about the challenges within China is falling into three categories, the economic, political and the social. On the economic front, he talks about the need to move from copying to innovation and about the importance of bringing down debt ratios, debt to GDP, now something like, I think he says, 230%. And so the debt fuel binge is a, is a real challenge for that economy. On the political side, clearly creating more open and transparency, not only because democracy is a normal good, but also because it's hard to see how the country continues to adapt to the huge number of pressures placed on it without more accountability and more transparency within its political system. Uh, and then socially responding to the tensions that mass migration from rural to urban, rising inequality and uh, stratospheric house prices are causing to the economy. What's your sense around demography in the region? The region is big, its demographic endowment was in many respects a key part of its economic growth, but it's also in Japan at one extreme. This is a country that's mm. visibly shrinking and visibly aging. If you go there, you're really struck by how um, much infrastructure is set up for an aging population. That's at one end, China is going to, as they say, get old before it gets rich. In India, you've got the opposite possibility of a, of a young population. What's your feeling about the demographic challenges that Asia might face? Well, as you say, there's huge differences. Uh, I'm relieved when you talk about an aging population in Japan because I'm running the Tokyo Marathon on the weekend. So uh, anything I can do to move myself up the rankings is, uh, is good, <laughs> even if it means uh, running against people who are older than me. But as you say, much of the region has now already gone through the demographic transition in which uh, birth rates drop to around replacement rates. Uh, in China, it was pushed by the one-child policy, but you see even with the relaxation of that policy, many families sticking at one. It's, it's almost like habit formation seems to have played mm. some, some part here. It's the social norm. India, I, I suspect, will continue to have higher than replacement birth rates for some time yet, simply because it doesn't have the social security system that people rely on. And so one of the reasons that families have a number of children is to support them in their dotage. If you trust the government to pay you a good pension, then you don't need to have kids as a, as a retirement plan. Japan's big challenge, I think, is, uh, is going to be its openness to migration, traditionally a country which hasn't had much in the way of permanent migration. And uh, as its leadership knows, that's a question which will become increasingly acute in uh, future years. Do you want to continue shrinking or do you want to keep on taking in more people who weren't born in Japan? Yeah, no, I guess the other part of the region's broad economic success was once the Americans and Chinese figured out how to get along with each other, Asia was a very peaceful geopolitical place that mm. allowed for all of this. Now we see when you look across the region, not only do you have the old Korean Peninsula, Taiwan Strait problems, but the territorial disputes, most obviously the South China Sea, raising their heads, nationalism is on the rise. And in President Trump, a much more muscular and, shall we say, unpredictable mm. <laughs> political figure in which confronting enemies, threats and challenges in a muscular way is central to his political persona. What's your sense as to 
the likelihood of a kind of geopolitical challenges seeing off or constraining economic opportunity? What economists call tail risk has clearly risen in the new environment. This oughtn't be a surprise. President Trump told us on the campaign trail that one of the key characteristics of his foreign policy would be unpredictability, and that's a promise on which I think he's uh, continuing to deliver. And in his view, that level of unpredictability has a strategic value for the United States in, in ensuring that people can't too easily read what the United States is going to do. The relationships, certainly at a deep military level between the United States and China, are quite strong. And so uh, while commanders at the local level could well make a mistake, higher up in the chain, there's a very strong bedrock of understanding. And, and my hope is that that holds things. But we can certainly understand China's desire to play a larger strategic role. And if we'd been having this conversation a decade ago, it would have been an environment in which China accepted the primacy of the United States uh, within the Asia-Pacific. That's no longer the case, I think. Uh, China wants a role uh, which is at minimum places it as an, as an equal within the Asia-Pacific. Mm. As Hugh White has articulately uh, argued, that's a significant challenge for Australia and its formal ANZUS alliance with the United States. Making room for China is uh, is important, but it's also important that we encourage China to work within an international rules-based order. The challenge, for example, with the nine-dash line has been that it has an ambiguous status in international law, which makes it difficult for other countries to work out precisely what the claim amounts to. Yeah, I think that's been a very deliberate strategy, which is to have this dash line that means no one knows quite what. Exactly. So you've got strategic uh, unpredictability from the Americans and strategic ambiguity from the Chinese. And, And that, again, is one of the factors why I think tail risk has risen. If you go back and look at the 2012, the Australia in the Asian Century White Paper, a bit of a mouthful, I was struck looking at it last night, is how optimistic it looks about that aspect of the region's future. Even if you don't necessarily buy the full kind of Asian century that's going to be a bright, rosy future, however you slice it, the region is going to continue to be extremely important for world politics and of crucial significance for Australia. What do you think is going to be the most important element of Asia's influence on Australia and how do you think that's going to evolve over the coming years? Well, clearly we will continue to become more ethnically diverse. Uh, That's probably the largest social change that we see in Australia. You walk through the middle of Melbourne or Sydney now, and it is uh, far more of a melting pot than it was in uh, those cities were in my childhood. We'll continue to engage more strongly with the region through trade and investment, I I hope, although that's uh, never a given. Uh, And I think it's important for policymakers to always be telling the optimistic story of global engagement. One of the purposes of the Australia and the Asian Century White Paper was to push back against some of the view that we should think of Asia as a threat uh, and to encourage Australians to see the possibility and the opportunity. I spent three years of my childhood growing up in Indonesia, a year in Malaysia. These are countries that uh, that I think have a, a huge amount to offer Australia and I think our businesses will be more innovative, our universities more exciting and on a superficial level our cuisine tastier uh, if we continue to engage with our region. 
Yeah, that old kind of hoary chestnut of Australia's international engagement, you know, from you know, this tyranny of distance that Australia always felt like, you know, it was the Luke Skywalker, you know, on the, if there was a planet that was far from the centre of the universe, you know, you're on it, <laughs> that was Australia. Whereas now there's this sort of emphasis on the promise of proximity, if you feel like you've got to replace one hackneyed phrase with another one. What do you think Australia should do to make the most of this promise, this opportunity, whether it's from the day-to-day cuisine right up to the sort of big macroeconomic and social trends that all shape Australian society? Timely question, because I'm currently working on a short book on some of those issues. I think it is important that we remind ourselves as a species which has spent most of our history hunkering down in small groups of a couple of hundred against the threats of marauding tribes that diversity and engagement has greater benefits than costs. That wasn't true for most of the last 100,000 years, but now we've gotten the uh, laws, the uh, civic norms uh, sorted out. Engagement benefits us all. Trade is not a zero-sum game. Foreign investment has added to the productive potential of the Australian economy, uh, and migration has made our economy more dynamic and our society more interesting. And it's, it's incumbent on progressives like me to make the case for openness, engagement, but also reminding ourselves that there's distributional impacts of global engagement uh, and that uh, if you're a free trader, you should also support a strong social safety net to ensure that those who are adversely affected by globalisation receive a portion of the aggregate gains. Yeah, it's a a lesson, I think, both in Europe and in North America, that perhaps if one could wind the clock back, one might play that game out slightly differently. Absolutely. What about the downside risks in Asia, whether they're geopolitical risks from conflict or whether they're, what if the China story comes off the rail, then that's going to be a, a very significant deal, not just for Australia, but for the world economy. What can or should Australia do to mitigate those risks? Because they're there. Yeah. And look, I suppose as a parliamentarian, I'm a natural optimist. And I do think that we need to be looking for opportunities to benefit Australians. I think there's little to be gained from putting up tariff walls, cutting off migration and saying we uh, won't accept foreign investment. We should be nudging countries where we can and, and we have varying degrees of influence. Obviously, Australia's ability to influence the trajectory in East Timor and Papua New Guinea is greater than it is in Japan and, and China. But we're a significant global player. We're certainly a, have our our seat at the table in the G20 among the top 20 largest uh, economies in the world. And we should use that for encouraging countries to work within a rules-based international order to allow their people to have a, a better say in decisions and to also engage in the same policies of openness. We benefit when we take the rocks out of our harbours, but so too do we benefit when our trading partners take the rocks out of theirs. So I'm going to do something which most academics don't like, which is look into your crystal ball 20 years hence, 2037. What do you think the region will look like and and what role will Asia play in Australian life? Well, so Nick, anytime you're asking an economist, which is uh, my training to predict the future, you should remember that ours is a profession which with very few exceptions, failed to foresee the global financial crisis coming along. But I do think we can say confidently that the world will be more diverse and that those increased human interactions will have greater rates of ethnic intermarriage in Australia. Uh, We will be more Asia literate because we'll just have more Asian neighbours living in our street. That, I, I hope, will be one of the most powerful forces. And it's why I think... 
the Australian universities, La Trobe has, has done as well as any, have benefited not just themselves but also the region by educating foreign students. Uh, having overseas students come to Australia, perhaps stay and work for a bit afterwards, but develop that web of links has been absolutely critical. Well, that's all the time that we have. Thanks for being part of the program, Andrew, and very best of luck both for your book and for your marathon at the weekend. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Real pleasure. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at A-L-E-E-M-P, that's A-L-E-I-G-H-M-P, or me at Nick Bisley. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review to help us spread the word. Thanks for listening.